There was a guy that went to his doctor after having weeks of symptoms. The doctor examined him and came to his conclusion and decided it might be better to break the news to his wife by himself rather than tell the guy. And so the doctor brought the wife into his office alone and said, I want you to know that your husband has a rare form of anemia. And if it's not treated, he can die in just a matter of a few weeks. And he said, this is what you need to do. He said, uh, he needs to be eating better. He needs to, you need to get up every morning and give him a breakfast with the works. Pancakes, bacon, eggs, the whole deal. At lunch, you need to give him a home-cooked meal every day. At night, you need to fix him uh, steak and potatoes. We're talking, again, the works. And it would also be helpful if during the day you could be baking uh, pies, homemade bread. He said, this is the kind of thing that is going to enable your husband to live. He said, oh, and one more thing. Uh, his immune system has been weakened because of this, and you'll, you'll need to keep your home spotless at all times. He asked her if she had any questions. She said, no. He said, well, do you want to break the news to him, or do you want me to do it? She said, I, I'll do it. He's my husband. So she walks out and she looks at her husband and he looked at her and he could tell that something was wrong and he said, it, it's bad, isn't it? You can tell me. And she shook her head and the tears began to well up in her eyes. He said, well, well, tell me, what did the doctor say? And the wife blurted out, the doctor said you're going to die. <laughs> Now that story is fiction, but it illustrates a very non-fiction fact. That is that marriage is difficult because it often requires, always requires from us more than we would like to do. You get right down to it, it's difficult because it requires change. Any kind of a healthy relationship, particularly marriage, as we're going through our series here in the Song of Solomon, we're going to see that a good marriage has got to be one that's growing. If it stays stagnant, if it stays to the same old place, it's not good. It's boring. It's not enjoyable. A good marriage is one that grows. But with growth, that requires change. That's kind of a bad word, isn't it? Change. And change uh, often comes as a result of conflict, or we wouldn't change. I know more about my computer because of errors that I've had in it and had to fix. I know more about my car because it's broken down and I've had to twerk with it. I know more about things because of problems. I know more about my wife because of issues that we've had to talk about. That's just the way life is. Marriage grows to what it needs to be as a proper response to conflict. As a matter of fact, a marriage lives or dies by how you respond to conflict. It either thrives or it withers, depending on how you respond. Last week, as David mentioned, we looked at the beginning of conflict in this marriage that has been exemplified in the Song of Solomon. And we've seen gone from the from their uh, single days, and we've talked about principles of being single. We've talked about courting and what to focus on there. We've talked about the 
issue of sexuality in marriage. Last week we looked at the issue of conflict. Today we're going to look at the issue of reconciliation. Let's look in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. We left off at verse 8, and that is where I'd like us to also start today. You may remember the story where we have picked it up. Solomon came home late from running the nation, and the door was locked, so he knocked on the door, and in a very kind way, he asked his wife to come open the door. She was in bed, she was warm, she was clean, she didn't want to get up and get dirty again, so she basically hollered out, let yourself in, I'm in bed. Solomon couldn't let himself in, and so he left. She felt sorry for him, got up, opened the door, and he had left, she went and searched for him. So they've had this this conflict, and now in verse 8, we read this at the end last week, and now we'll start with it again. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, I'm lovesick. And then they ask, What kind of beloved is your beloved? O most beautiful among women, what kind of beloved is your beloved that you adjure us? So they ask a question here, and I think the NIV uh, does a, a better job of translating this, or at least I prefer it. They, it's translated that way, not uh, what kind is he, but how is your beloved better than others? What they're saying is, tell us more about him. And this is a helpful thing to do. Uh, they're essentially asking what's so special about him. This is a helpful thing to do, because remember what her problem was last week, that of indifference. Before, oh, she'd jump up, run around, and bend over backwards for Solomon before they were married in their young, early days. But now there's been a little time, a little water under the bridge. She's not so willing to be that bridge over troubled waters. Rather, let him swim across by himself. And so the question is asked, what do you like about your spouse? And look at how she answers. Gives her an opportunity now to change her attitude. Verse 10, she says, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is like gold, pure gold, speaking of its value. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting like jewels. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, Banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Probably means that his beard is perfumed. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory. Kathy tells me that all the time. He's got... What's so funny? What's... All right, I'll show you. This is probably about the only figure of speech that we have in the Song of Solomon that we have today. You talk about people who have a chiseled frame. We're talking, that means that they're, they're really well defined. And that's what she's saying. Uh, Solomon could make one of those videos, you know, instead of, uh, uh, the only one that comes to mind is Buns of Steel. But he could, he could have abs of ivory. You know, just see, you know, Solomon's abs there on the, on the front of the video. Anyway. Uh, so he's got abs of ivory, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster, set on pedestals of pure gold. 
His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. So she starts at his head and she works her way down, saying all the things that she appreciates about Solomon. So the sin of indifference can be overcome by changing your attitude. Here is a great principle. Start improving your attitude toward your spouse. Be more grateful. Say, well, I don't have a spouse. Well, if you don't have a spouse, then use it in some area that you're indifferent. Because the principles go across the board here. In areas of indifference, which marriage often easily becomes, being more grateful for the things that you appreciate. So what the ladies asked Mrs. Solomon, I want to ask you today. What makes your spouse so special? Some of you may say, well, nothing. You know, if I had a spouse like Solomon here, I mean, who wouldn't love these abs of ivory? Who wouldn't look at this and, and, and be admirable towards him? Well, remember, it was this, these abs of ivory last week that she told you to let himself in. Remember last week we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ himself, if you were married to Jesus, you wouldn't be satisfied. Because perfection doesn't lessen your selfishness, it only enhances it because of the contrast. You look at people who are around Jesus, even his closest friends when push came to shove, misunderstood and rejected him, though he was a perfect communicator and though he was a perfectly loving person, his perfection was irrelevant to other people's selfishness. So marrying a perfect person is not the answer. The answer is what are you going to focus on? Are you going to selfishly be indifferent? Are you going to focus like her attitude changed and focused on what she admired about him? Let me give you an example here. There was a rich rancher called up to a church office and the secretary answers, hello, and this rich rancher says, let me speak to the head hog of the trough. And she says, excuse me, as you heard me, darling, I want to speak to the head hog of the trough. Are you referring to our senior pastor? Well, that's what you call him, but I call him the head hog of the trough. She says, well, I think I'm going to have to take a message. I don't think he's here right now. Well, that's all right. Would you tell him that I'd like to donate half a million dollars to your building fund? She says, wait a minute. I think I hear that fat old pig coming right now. Now, that guy didn't change, did he? But her perception of the same person changed when she saw value in him. It was simply a matter of what she chose to focus on. And half a million dollars will change the perspective real quick, won't it? You look at an old chair, and it's just an old chair. It's worth nothing until you call it an antique, and all of a sudden it's worth something. You've got a, uh, a, a shack that's just a shack until George Washington sleeps in it, and then we stick a national monument in front of it. The old chair's just an old chair. The shack's just a shack. But our value of those things change depending on our perspective. Your spouse, you may look at him or her as an old shack or an old chair. But I tell you what, you saw something of value in that person or you never would have married them. You probably saw that person when you first married, like uh, Solomon is here described by his wife. And so to say, well, if I had somebody like that, uh, I would 
be more grateful. Well, let me tell you, you've got somebody like that, or you never would have married them. You say, well, I didn't know about them until we're married. I didn't know what they were really like. Well, let me tell you something else that's true. You're also learning what you're really like. Because it is not an issue of marrying perfection. It is an issue of what you as a selfish person are going to focus on. Everybody's got flaws. Jesus, when he was around people, could have easily pointed out people's flaws. Often he did, especially to the Pharisees and the hypocrites that did not believe in him. But to those who showed a grain of faith, he commended them for that faith. And he could have said, you know, to the woman whom he said, woman, your faith is great. He could have said, woman, you're the biggest sinner. I know all about you. He didn't say that. If he saw something commendable in them, he would, he would encourage them in that area of uh, commendation. That is exactly what we are to do as well. Not only did she focus on his abs, on the physical, but she also focuses, verse 16, the last verse of the chapter, on his character. It says, his mouth is full of sweetness. And he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The word mouth there, you ought to have a note in your margin, or a note that takes you to your margin. It, it's literally in Hebrew the word for your palate. It's speaking of his voice, his, his words. His words are sweet. Now, we're not talking about the cheap sweet talk here. That's um, just used for getting something. I'm talking here about someone who is gentle and who is kind with their voice. Um, I heard of a lady one time that told a pastor, I wish my husband would just talk to me like he talks to the waitress at Denny's. I wish that he would treat me like he does uh, a complete stranger. To treat me like someone, to treat me whom he has vowed before God to love, honor, and cherish as opposed to a complete stranger he's probably never going to see again. It's so easily, easy for the sin of indifference to take over. And the old chair is just an old chair. So having answered the question now, who is he? What value is he? And she said, he's valuable outside, he's valuable on the inside. He's not only my husband, but he's my friend. Now they ask another question in, in chapter 6 that gives us a couple of good applications. They ask now, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she answers, my beloved's gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, he who pastures his flock among the lilies. So even though she knows, she, she answers the question, I know where he's gone, but her emphasis here is, in spite of the conflict, I, my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. The conflict doesn't change their commitment. And there's another great principle. That is that conflict is irrelevant to commitment. Tell you what, this would make a great message all by itself. I could preach until supper time on this issue. Conflict is irrelevant to commitment. 
Phil Passon made the statement, a successful marriage is one that can go from crisis to crisis with a growth in commitment. From crisis to crisis with a growth in commitment. On the other hand, an unsuccessful one, it goes from crisis to crisis with a weakening of commitment. Conflict is irrelevant to it. This means that every time there's a problem, you don't use the D word. You don't, use, you don't threaten to divorce someone just because things are going tough. We don't do that with our children. What if I were to tell my five-year-old daughter, Sarah, say, all right, Sarah, I'm tired of the way you're acting. If you do that one more time, you're out on the street. What would that do to a five, precious little five-year-old? Do the same thing that it would to a, a precious little 15-year-old or a, a 50-year-old spouse. It would break their heart. You know, God doesn't treat us like that. He doesn't look down and say, okay, Wayne, one more sin like that and you're out. You know, I know I said Jesus died for your sins and all, but shoot, look at what you're doing. One more time and you're going to hell. God doesn't do that. He doesn't look down on us with conditional love. Why do I love my daughter? Not because she earns her keep. She spends my keep. I love her because she's mine. Not because of what she does for me. God loves me because I'm His. Not because of what I do for Him. The same thing's true with the spouse. You say, well, look, it's not the same. You know, a, a, a child is flesh and blood. The Lord, that's different. It's not the same as a marriage. It is the same. Because the commitment that is supposed to be there is one that is the same across the board. An issue of uh, blood runs thicker than water. That's baloney. Blood doesn't run thicker than water. Or unless you want to look at it this way, your spouse is more kin to you than your children. What is it that Adam said when uh, God brought Eve to him? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she is taken out of man. Not just a physical relationship, but then Moses goes on from that and draws a universal principle. For this reason, uh, man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The closest physical blood relationship that you have in the eyes of God and ought be in your eyes is your spouse. Because one day that child is going to leave father and mother and go be united somewhere else. That is not your first bond. Your first bond is that spouse. And in, like God, like a child, like a spouse, it is the security of commitment that enables you to work through the issues. My child knows that she's secure. She knows that I would never do that to her. The only reason I can have a relationship with God is because I know that He will never forsake me no matter how many times I sin against Him. Or grace is not grace. I am saved not because I do anything, but because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. I am saved because Christ died for my sins. And I believe that. And I'm trusting in that. I'm not saved because of my works. And so I don't stay saved because of my works. If I did, I would lose it every single day. Every single hour. It is the, the security of commitment that enables you to work through conflict, be it a child, be it a God, be it a spouse. It's the unconditional love that's important.
Solomon's wife knows where he has gone. And so she goes there to him. What is going to be his response? Now remember, the last time that they talked, Solomon came to her, gave a kind, uh, spoke to her kindly, and she responded selfishly. So how is he going to respond now? Look at verse 4. He says, You are as beautiful as Tersia, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. We've seen that before. That have descended from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins. Not one among them has lost their young, her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. So how does he respond? Well, he doesn't say, Ah, ha, there you are. I didn't think you had the guts to come out here and face me. He didn't say that. He didn't immediately chide her for her selfish reaction. Instead, he gives her an unconditional love. Before she can even say, I'm sorry, the forgiveness is assumed and he says, Hello, beautiful. And notice what he says. I hope that these words sounded familiar. If you've been here with us, I know that the flock of goats sounds familiar. Because we talked about that. When was the last time that he said that to her? In fact, all this stuff was on their wedding night, back in chapter 4. In fact, he even goes down in verse 7 and talks about her veil. She wasn't wearing a veil here. Why is he saying that? He is saying the exact same thing he said on his wedding night for uh, a good reason. That is to let her know, <clears throat> in spite of the conflict that we have experienced, I want you to know I am just as committed to you as the day we were married. But even though he says uh, the, the same thing that he said on the wedding night, he leaves out some things. He doesn't talk about their sexual relationship here. And on the wedding night, he did. He goes on to compliment her lips, uh, her breasts, goes on to talk about very intimate things and compliments, but he leaves that out here. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, turn your eyes away from me for they've confused me. Again, I think the NIV does a lot better job. It says, turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. They are arousing him. And he is saying, uh, I've come not to, uh, not for us, I'm not saying these things to you, to have to get intimate with you. And he doesn't want her to confuse his motives. So he says, after he told her that you're beautiful, he says, now wait a minute. She must have given him the look. He says, wait a minute. That's not why I'm telling you this. I'm telling this, I want you to know, in spite of our conflict, I am as committed to you as I was the day we were married. And though he leaves out the sexual things, he adds to a couple adds to it a couple of more things that are more pertinent to the conflict situation. Verse 8. Now, don't be shaken by this. Let's read it. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her, saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn, 
as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. So these queens, these concubines, these maidens are praising Solomon's wife, calling her pure. In fact, the word here means a moral purity. She's pure. Now, I say don't be shaken by this because a lot of times people will look at these verses and go, well, especially in light of Solomon's reputation, we know in kings of having scads of wives. I mean, in his later years, he had a bunch of wives. So many, they had to have name tags just to know who they were. I'm teasing. But people will look at this and say, well, wait a minute. How can this be the song of songs if Solomon has already sung this, this song to 60 queens, 80 concubines and maidens without number? Well, first of all, I don't think, I do think that this is Solomon's first marriage represented here in the song of songs for a couple of reasons. One are not in, a couple are not in the text and a couple are. First, this is God's ideal marriage. This is the way God desires marriage to be handled. Polygamy was never God's intent. You go back to the garden. He said regarding Adam, I will make a helper suitable for him. One. So polygamy is not God's intent. Also, you go through and whenever you see that there is polygamy in the Bible, there is always conflict. Always conflict. Uh, when Jacob, Jacob's wives were always fighting back and forth. Uh, Hannah in 1 Samuel, her husband's other wife, Penaniah, was all, they were always, uh, there was conflict there. In fact, she is even called in that context a rival. And I say all that to say rivals don't praise one another. And that's what's happening here. Plus, if you look more at the text, uh, and again, the NIV does a great job. The, there's queens, there's concubines, and maidens. Literally, it's virgins. Uh, you don't marry in a polygamist society to let your wives remain virgins. That is wholly beside the whole point of polygamy. And so I take it that he's using these women, all classes, be it queens, be it concubines, and maidens, as an example of the uniqueness of his bride. In fact, he even increases the number each time. He says there's 60 queens and even more, 80 concubines and even more. There's maidens or virgins without number, none of which, notice, he calls mine. And then he says in verse 9, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. So I take it he is simply using, not saying you are a wife among wives, but you are a woman among all women. He's praising her. Not chiding her. And so here, I think, is another great principle. Not only you start improving your attitude, but also start improving your actions by being more affirming. One man said, I think my wife is an angel. She never has anything to wear. She's always up in the air and she's always harping on something. How unlike Christ that is. As I said, Jesus was always affirming. When he saw something to affirm, he would affirm. Now, it wasn't that he would avoid the negative, but he would affirm the positive. And that's what we're to focus on. 
I went to a seminar one time uh, with my dad. We sat there. I think it was for his business, a motivational seminar of some kind. And they brought this lady up front, and they had her stand there. But before she came up front, she left the room, and this guy said, All right, when I say number one, I want you to look at her uh, as if she had just caused you to lose a million dollars. Don't say anything, just look at her. And when I say two, I want you to look at her as if she had just caused your company to uh, get a million dollars. And so the lady comes back in and they say one. And you could just see this lady's face just fall. Not a word was said, but everybody in the audience was looking at her and just scowling. And you could just see her spirit just sinking. And then he said, okay, two. Not a word was said except that. And everybody's face changed and immediately you saw her face changed. She didn't know what was going on, except that the mood was happening. She was getting affirmation just from body language. Now imagine how much more you add body language to words in your family. People that know you deeper than anybody. Affirmation goes further and criticism goes further. I tell you what, when Kathy criticizes me, it just, ah, oh, it doesn't matter if a thousand of you tell me I'm the most wonderful person in the world. But it also, on the reverse, if a thousand of you tell me I'm a jerk, and Kathy is telling me consistently, as she does, what she really thinks about my personality. <laughs> it is so wonderful. Like Thomas Decker said, marriage, oh, what, a, what a, a heaven, and oh, what a hell. It can be both, because nobody gets to you deeper. So you want to be more affirming. Morton Kilsey, he said, The real test of my loving is not that I feel loving, but that the other person feels loved by me. Does your spouse feel loved by you? Here's a great way to tell. Ask them, say, Honey, is your self-image greater now than when we married? Or is it less? If they say it's less, then I've got a great prescription for you. Be less critical. And start improving your actions toward your spouse by being more affirming. You can't overdo affirmation. I want you to think of three things. And if you're not married, think about it any area of indifference. But if you're married, I want you to apply it to your marriage. Think of three things that you appreciate about your spouse and tell them. Now, if you don't do this, God will tell me and I'll read your name next week. Okay? Don't just slough it off. I hope that you are, you are affirming anyway. And this assignment is saying, just keep doing what you're doing. But if you're not doing it, and your spouse would say, you know what, honestly, my self-image is less than when we got married. That should not be. You ought to be your spouse's number one cheerleader. Especially you husbands. And especially if your wife work doesn't work outside the home. She has nobody else but you to sing her praises. The children aren't going to do it for 30 years till, until they have children and recognize what a great mom she was. She's not going to hear it from them. She's not going to hear it from the world. They're telling her she's uh, behind the times and, and insignificant because she stays at home. Got to hear it from you, and she's got to hear it a lot. So as a result now of the way that they handled it correctly, look at verses 11 through 13. She says, I went down to the orchard of nut trees 
to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranate had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me over the chariots of my noble people. In other words, she went to see if there was fresh evidence of love because there was. He complimented her. She said it sent her soul flying. Verse 13, as they leave, the women shout, come back, come back, O Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Solomon says, why should you gaze, or perhaps better, how should you gaze at the Shulamite? As at the dance of the two companies? Shulamite's a feminine form of Solomon's Hebrew name. It's like saying Solomonus. And they want to gaze at her. So, to quickly review. First of all, in summary, conflict is relevant to commitment. Remember this? Don't threaten rejection just because of conflict. God doesn't do it. We don't do it either. Secondly, to combat indifference, start improving your attitude toward your spouse. How? By being more grateful. And finally, not just your attitude, but your actions. By being more affirming. Remember those three things that you appreciate. And tell them. Tell them. You know, one thing I find so interesting about this text today, of how they worked on reconciliation, is they didn't focus on the error of the other person. They didn't load their guns and say, all right, I'm ready. Let's reconcile. She didn't focus on the fact that he woke her up from a dead sleep wanting intimacy. He didn't focus on the fact that uh, she responded to his graciousness with rudeness. But rather, they both turned away from the negative things which anybody can criticize and instead affirmed one another in the areas of strength. That is what you must do and you must do it regularly. I want to close by reading for you a proverb. Just one verse. It's not going to be on the screen. It's not in your bulletin. Proverbs 13, 19 says this. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but fools detest turning from evil. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but fools detest turning from evil. You know what that means? That means that all of us have desires to have sweetness, to enjoy life, to sweetness to our souls. We all have desires that we long to be fulfilled in our marriage, in our relationships. But only a fool is willing or is unwilling to turn from evil. If you are not willing to change, if you are not willing to change in your marriage, then you are not willing to grow. And you will not be able eventually to enjoy the sweetness that marriage can offer. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us, young and old, single, married, parent or child, we need security. We need the security of your love. And God, we thank you that we have it. That your love is not conditioned upon our works. But is conditioned upon what you have done in Jesus dying for our sins. And Lord, from that, we need to love one another. Because you love, that's why we are able to love. Because you first loved us and gave your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins.
Father, I pray for the marriages here today that are struggling, that are perhaps even now needing one more reason to stay together. Lord, would you show them you are that reason. You can help them work it out. I pray, Lord, for the singles here, that they might go into marriage with an attitude of this is it, come hell or high water. I pray for those who have been married for a long time and are enjoying a good marriage, that we would not get complacent and indifferent, but we would continue to affirm as we've done all along. Lord, we thank you that we have security with you. And I pray that we might offer that same thing to one another and so grow and so change and not be fools who detest turning from evil. We pray in Jesus' name.